We're going to be looking at what, um, what the Bible has to say about forgiveness and why in the world this matters in the context of our relationships. So with that in mind, I'd invite you to kind of turn your attention to uh, Matthew chapter 18. You can uh, follow along on some of the Bibles that are here if you brought one or you can just follow along on, this sh- on the sheet. Um, but I'll go ahead and read it. This is out of Matthew 18 beginning in verse 21. And I'll remind you that this is God's word for us uh, tonight. Here at RUF, we really do believe that God um, has spoken through his word, and that's why we try to take it seriously every single week. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 21 on. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The, master served, the, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. If you would, pray with me before we consider it together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we are uh, uh, coming into this room in all sorts of different places. Some, some of us are bored with Christianity and just kind of come in here feeling numb. Uh, some of us come in here desperate, hoping that maybe just one more... Bible study type thing will give them the jolt that they need to keep going. Some of us come in here really enthusiastic and excited to see people and excited to dig into the Bible. Some of us come in here with lots of questions and lots of doubt and lots of confusion over who you are and what you are and what you're doing. And so, Father, I would just ask that in this context, you would meet us and your Holy Spirit would teach us. We really are desperate uh, for you to be our teacher now. We, we have no hope of understanding this apart from your help. And so would you do that? Would you come and be our teacher in these moments? And we would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I was in seminary a few years ago, me and a friend of mine were, were hired by this family in the neighborhood to do some, like, yard work. So just me and a buddy, seminary friend, and we're, like, you know, raking leaves and bagging leaves and trimming hedges and pulling weeds and stuff. And they also wanted us to, to uh, pressure wash the side of their house. And so, you know, they had this pressure washer that was, like, brand new. Like, we had to take it, like, out of the box and, like, try to assemble it. I mean, it didn't require assembly, but, you know, like figuring out where the hoses go and what. And um, one of the things that you have to do whenever you have sort of an engine that you're about to start is you've got to put oil in it. And so it comes, you know, with those little things of oil. And 
problem was we couldn't figure out where to put the oil on this particular machine. There was all sorts of valves and the two of us are complete morons and so we couldn't really like figure it out. So we just kind of guessed. It's like, I, I think that's the valve. And you know, dump the oil into the slot and you know, seal it up and crank it up and it's working, start spraying, everything's great, boom. Until like three minutes later. And the thing starts making this loud like screeching sound and then just totally shuts down, like shuts off. And so we set it on the ground, we're trying to turn it on again and it will not, it won't, it won't turn on. And so as it was on the ground and we're trying to figure this thing out, we saw, I guess on that particular angle, there was like an arrow into the, this one valve that said oil that we had just kind of missed. It's like, oh. <laughs> That wasn't the valve we put oil in, which means that the engine was not running with oil in it, and we destroyed it. Now, I don't know much about engines. I don't know how they work, but I do know enough that there is a lot of moving parts with heat and friction, and you need oil as a lubrication between the parts. Otherwise, they're just rubbing up against each other, and it gets so hot, and the friction gets so intense that they have, the parts meld together, and the whole thing just locks up. Which is what happened to our friend's um, pressure washer. Sorry, bill us. You know, we're seminary students. Um, so, so here's why I bring this up. We um, experience the heat and the friction in every single relationship that, that, that you have. I mean, you know what this is like. That when you are bumping up against each other and, and you are experiencing the heat and the friction, that's, just the, that's the normal stuff of relationships, this side of the fall. When you are experiencing things like, uh, I don't know if I trust you, I've been hurt by you, and so now things that you say, I don't know if you have a hidden agenda to them. You know, you get, you, sometimes you're just me, you're, just, you're tired, you're, you're rude, and, and touchy, and so we have these sorts of encounters with each other where just conflict and friction happens. And my, what I'm going to try to say tonight is that gospel-centered forgiveness is really the lubricating oil that, that is, the, is, the, is the buffer between that sort of forgiveness. Every relationship, if it does not have an operating element of forgiveness in it regularly, it is, it's set up to, to lock up and to ultimately be ruined. And so I want, to look at, I want to look at forgiveness with you tonight in this passage and kind of what this passage has to say about it. And I want to look at it uh, kind of from three different headings. I want to look at the cost of forgiveness, the cost of, not, of non-forgiveness, and then uh, how you can be someone who, who forgives. So those are the three things. What is the cost of what it looks like to forgive? What, what's the cost of what it looks like to not forgive? And then how can we be people who forgive each other? Okay? So let's look at the cost of forgiveness. Peter comes up to Jesus and he's like, okay, man, how many times should I forgive somebody? I mean, where is the line where as soon as somebody crosses it, I can withhold mercy, I can withhold forgiveness, and it's okay, it's justifiable for me to hold a grudge against them. And Jesus says there's, there's no line. You are to forgive an infinite amount. Forgiveness is to be a posture of who you are. And so what, um, like right now, forgiving this child, joking. <laughs> I know her, I know the baby, we're friends. So Jesus, um, Jesus launches into this parable, this story, to it kind of illustrate what he's talking about with forgiveness. And so basically the story kind of goes, there's this king, right? And he's got this servant that owes him like $6 billion. There's this enormous insane amount of money that he owes the king. And so the king comes to him and says, um, it's time to pay up. 
And because this servant is delusional, I mean, look at what he says in, in verse 26. He says, just give me more time and I'll pay it off. Just, just give me a little bit more time. Which, of course, the king knows that's insane. There's no way that you're going to be able to pay this thing off. And so the king takes mercy upon this servant and cancels the debt. Okay, let's hit pause right there. Because this is, this is what Jesus is doing. He's letting us in on what forgiveness is and how costly it is. And so here's what I want you to see is that forgiveness at some level is canceling a debt. When you say that you forgive someone, you, you, are, you are taking the hit for them. You're canceling their debt. But that means that you are self-consciously saying, I'm not going to make you pay for it. I, I will pay for it. You self-consciously say, I will pay for the debt in your place. And so you can kind of say, this is what forgiveness is in a nutshell. It's you taking the hit for the very person who sinned against you and then promising to not make them pay for it. It's you taking the hit for the very person that just sinned against you and then you making a promise to them that you will not make them pay for it. Uh, Think of it like this. When my wife and I uh, lived in... Uh, Charlotte, our first house that we bought. Uh, we moved in. We had like, we're unpacking boxes. We're in this neighborhood. And this was one of the neighborhoods where just people kind of are out on their porches a lot. And people just kind of are, are visiting with each other out on the street. And so this uh, woman and her three kids uh, came up and just greeted us. I mean, we're, we're literally like in the house for like 10 minutes. And, and so like stuff is like we're just unpacking and so she's there and introduces herself and you know welcomes us to the neighborhood she's real sweet and as we're talking you know our house has one of these kind of big old front porches it's just sort of awesome to kind of lounge on but as we're talking on the porch these kids are just kind of running all over the porch you know playing tag and pushing each other and as I'm talking to their mom I hear this glass shattering <laughs> And you turn, and apparently one of the kids had accidentally like pushed the other kid through like our window. It's like glass, glass has shattered. The kid's like arm is bleeding, blood's dripping onto our porch. We've literally been there like for three seconds, and like now I've got a I've got a damage to repair in this house. So what does it look? I mean, you know, of course she is extremely apologetic. Oh, I'm so sorry. She was you know so upset about it. I was like, no, it's okay, it's okay. So what does forgiveness look like in that moment? Forgiveness looks like me saying, it's okay, I'm not going to force you to pay for this. But I still have a broken window. Who's going to pay for it? I am. I'm going to be the one that goes to the store and spends the money to buy the glass and and put it in. I'm I'm paying for what she should have. But that's what forgiveness is. is I'm not going to make you pay for it. I will pay for it. That's what forgiveness is, is you're taking the hit and then saying, uh, I will not make you pay for this. And so when the king in this story takes this $6 billion debt and cancels it, he is himself taking a $6 billion hit to his bank account. He is out that much money that he could have had. Here's what this means for us, is that you all know sort of the heat and the friction of a relationship, right? I mean, you know what it's like to be hurt by your parents, You know what it's like to be betrayed by a friend or a roommate. You know what it's like to have a a boyfriend or a girlfriend say something or do something that just wounds you deeply. And in those moments, you have an opportunity to forgive them. But more often than not, we do one of two things instead. Is that we choose instead, I want to get even. I, I want them to feel what they've done to me. That's option one. Or option two is just kind of pretend that they didn't hurt you in the first place. Oh, it's okay. It's not a big deal. 
Why, are the, why is that our instinct? Why is option one and option two our instinct of saying, I, I want to get even or I'm just going to pretend like nothing happened? I think it's because we know that to forgive them is costly. It's expensive. It's pricely to us. It, it's painful. Because what we're doing is, is, is we're basically saying, um, I, if I forgive you, I'm going to promise not to bring this offense up anymore. I'm not going to bring this up. And we make this promise of, and, and I myself, and I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to just marinate on how I can sort of get even with you. And we make this promise of, um, I'm not going to keep score anymore. I'm not going to make you pay for this when you hurt me. And that's painful. That is costly to make that sort of move towards somebody. But, you know, when we do that, some of us, you know, we say, I forgive you, or we say, oh, it's okay, but we're not always consistent with our promises, right? Because we say, I forgive you, but then we end up um, giving them, like, the silent treatment. You know what I mean? Or or we kind of give them the cold shoulder and just kind of act cold around them. Or we say, I forgive you, we say it's okay, and then inevitably, in our next conversation, we find ourselves bringing it back up. What we're doing in these moments is we're not forgiving them. We're not saying, I will pay for all of it. We're saying, I'll pay for some of it, and I want you to pay for some of it too. And that's not forgiveness. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is unbelievably costly. Now, before we move on to the next thing, I just want to nuance this real quick. And um, we don't have enough time to look at all of what the Bible has to say about this particular issue. But I just want to be clear because it's really easy to get confused on this, that um, forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Biblically speaking, forgiveness and reconciliation is not the same thing. Because Jesus calls us to Forgive. That's a non-negotiable in Jesus' kingdom. We're called to love the other people and to forgive them. But then the question gets raised of, okay, what if I'm in a physically abusive relationship? Does that mean Jesus wants me to just go right back into this relationship and just forgive them? What, what if I'm in a sexually abusive relationship? What if this person doesn't, doesn't think that they've done anything wrong and they refuse to repent and they refuse to confess, they refuse to admit it, and I'm just left with all of these wounds? Well, the nuance is this, is that you are always called to have an attitude, to have a posture of forgiveness for that person. To say, no, like, as much as I'm able to, I'm going to promise this and not make you pay for this. But to move towards them out of love may mean uh, involving authorities. It may mean uh, serious confrontation. And it may mean just sort of separation altogether. Jesus doesn't call us to remain in those sorts of abusive contexts. He calls us to forgive them. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And I just feel like I need to nuance that because it's easy for us to sort of blend the two together. So that's the first thing that I want you to see is that um, forgiveness is costly. But even still, I know some of you are thinking, okay, what the Bible lays out here about forgiveness, that's just, that's crazy. That is way too radical. I mean, if if I uh, forgive somebody, that's going to be painful and costly and I know I probably should forgive that seems like a good thing but I don't know if I can do that I mean what if I what if I forgive them there's no guarantee that they're not going to hurt me again right look I, I get that I feel that I sympathize with all of that but what I want you to see secondly is that if you refuse to forgive if you withhold forgiveness the cost of doing that is actually so much more higher than the cost of actually forgiving them 
So just, let's just continue the story and look at how the cost of non-forgiveness is actually more expensive in this regard. Okay, so the king has forgiven his servant of this massive debt, right? And then the servant goes out, and look in verse 28. You see what he does? He runs into one of his servants that owes him like $12,000. Big chunk of money, but not anything compared to what he just was canceled. But he's got his own servant who owes him some money, and now he, the tables have turned. He's the one in control. He's the one that someone else owes him something, right? And, and look at what he says. It, 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 he grabs him by the throat, chokes him, and demands that his servant pay. He refuses to forgive the servant. So if you just see a snapshot right there of what this guy is doing, when he is withholding forgiveness, look at what he's turning into. He's turning into a victimizer. I mean, he's just eaten up with bitterness and anger. He's vindictive. If someone hurts him, he just immediately strikes back. Look at this picture of him. When you refuse to forgive somebody as well, the same thing happens to you. I mean, you may not be like choking people, but you will retaliate. You'll retaliate when people hurt you, or you'll just kind of shut off the relationship altogether. You will push people away. And what you have to see is that uh, if you refuse to forgive, it's ultimately a bigger price to pay because the, the price that you're paying is the cost of your soul. I mean, do you see how dehumanizing this is for this guy in the story? And not only does it cost you your soul, it costs you the relationship. I mean, the relationship is, is shredded now. It costs you yourself. It costs you your, your dignity, your humanity. It costs you your relationship. When you hold on to the wound and you refuse to forgive, uh, you really just lose everything. Now, I want to cite my sources. The information I'm about to um, uh, share with you, I got from one of my pastor friends named Jeremy Jones. He used to do RUF down at Emory. And uh, I was listening to him speaking on this subject, and he was quoting this guy named John Gottman. And John Gottman is this like professional, world-renowned psychologist who's one of the leading scholars in, in sort of marriage analysis. He's like devoted his whole life to studying marriage and the ins and outs of it. And, and uh, John Gottman basically ha- has kind of constructed that there are four different types of speech that always inevitably lead to divorce in marriages. Four different types of speech, four different ways of speaking to each other, that as soon as these four things show up in a relationship, it's, it's almost destined to fall apart. And so I, I want to, you know, I know most of y'all aren't married, but I think that some of this is relevant for the way that you think about how you relate to your roommate, how you think about how you relate to your boyfriend or your girlfriend. All of this is extremely relevant for you. So let me just kind of go through these four things, and you'll kind of see that they all bleed into each other. The first form of, uh, of this type of speech that he talks about is, is criticism. Criticism, you know, where you basically attack the other person. You say things like, well, you always do this. I can't believe it. You, you don't care about me. You only care about yourself. You're so selfish. And when you're attacking somebody, when, when criticism is sort of the way that y'all are talking, this inevitably leads into the second step, if that first step lasts long enough. And that second step is contempt. Which is basically, there's just this layer of disgust and cruelty now covering your criticism. It's basically where your criticism kind of gets, it just gets colder and it becomes more cutting. And so what happens is you start the name calling. of You're an idiot, you're hopeless, you're dressing like a slut tonight, things like that. Or, you, or, or you, uh, you start with the sarcasm and the mockery where you say things like, oh, it's just so great that you just did that. Sarcasm and mockery kind of bleeds into making threats, you know, especially if you're in a relationship, a romantic relationship, where you say, I dare you to do that again. If you do that one more time, I'm out. I'm leaving. Start making threats with each other. 
In the second level, this contempt becomes unbelievably painful where these deep wounds get, get created. And, and if this is happening long enough, if somebody is, is criticizing you and that leads into contempt, I mean, just imagine if you're in that situation and another person is doing that to you, what's, what's your natural reaction? It's defense. That leads into the third step, which is defense. I mean, you, you're doing anything that you can to stop the blows that are just sort of raining up, upon you. And, and what is the weapon that you pick up to defend yourself? It's criticism and contempt. You pick up the same weapon that's being leveled at you. And so you say things like, well, well yeah, I did that, but it's because you do this and you do this and you do this. Or, um, uh, or you say things like, uh, or you just pull out the old, pull out the scorecard. Or you didn't realize it, but you've been keeping this mental inventory of every single instance that they've annoyed you or hurt you or frustrated you, and you pull out all of the, the list of how, they've, of how they've hurt you. There's a um, singer-songwriter named uh, Richard Thompson, amazing, gifted uh, singer, writer, and, and he had a really rough go of marriage, as, you, as you're going to tell in this song that I'm about to quote to you, because he wrote this song about his marriage that really fell apart. And the song is called The Razor Dance. The Razor Dance. Here it is. Here's a couple lines. He says, After the death of a thousand kisses comes the catacomb of tongues. Who can spit the meanest venom from the poison of their lungs? Cruelest dance is the razor dance. Circle in and circle around. He said, she said, she said, he said. Thrill to put the other down. The razor dance. The razor dance. I mean, you see, what, I mean, he, he's describing this whole process of, of criticism that leads into contempt, which just leads into defense, which ultimately leads into this last step, which is, which is basically just stonewalling. You know, stonewalling. This is, this is where one of the persons in this particular context basically just shuts down, just implodes and just stops engaging. And, and usually it's, it's the man in, in a guy-girl relationship. It's usually the guy where it's essentially like he just goes mute and doesn't even engage anymore. It's like looking out into distance or maybe even just leaves the room, stonewalling. I mean, do you recognize this pattern? I mean, have you, have you experienced this? John Gottman, he says, when these four things come into your relationship, which, by the way, he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. When these four things settle into your relationship, your relationship is deteriorating. And the reason is, is because both people are refusing to forgive each other. It's based on their refusal to forgive each other. And what I want you to see is that this is the picture of the price you pay when you refuse to forgive I mean, you lose your humanity. You're shredding the other person alive with your razor dance words. You're, you're, the relationship is falling apart. You're losing them. You're losing the relationship. You're losing yourself. This is a hefty, hefty price to pay for the refusal to forgive. But what I've noticed with college students, especially college students that are in dating relationships, is that when both, couple, when both people refuse to forgive, what happens is that they opt for making settlements. They opt to just sort of make these deals under the table that are kind of unspoken. If you give me this, I'll give you this, and we'll just kind of stay out of each other's business. And what that looks like usually, especially in dating relationships, is some form of sexual activity or some form of just messing around. It's, um, 
the thing, that's, the thing that holds our relationship together is not love and it's not joy, it's not intimacy, it's, it's the sex or it's, it's the messing around. The guy gets the sexual stuff that he wants from the girl and the girl gets the emotional stuff that she wants from the guy and they're basically making these trades with each other unwilling, uh, unknowingly so. They don't know that they're doing it, but they're making these trades. And so sex becomes a thing that the relationship is, is holding the relationship together. And this is why you can have couples, two people that hate each other, fight all the time, yell at each other constantly, and yet cannot stop messing around with each other. It's because that's, what, that's what's holding the thing together. And when this, is, when this happens, the relationship is, it is deteriorating. It is rotting from the inside out. And it's based in the fact that both people are refusing to forgive each other. They refuse to forgive. But I know that um, uh, you're probably thinking, um, okay, even still, forgiveness just feels so costly. I mean, when someone hurts me, when someone wounds me, uh, when I take the hit, that just feels like I, I don't know where I, I get the power to do that. It feels so much easier to withhold forgiveness and to just be okay with the larger price that I pay for that. So the question is, okay, how do, we, how do we get to become the people that forgive? I mean, where do we find the strength and the power to extend mercy knowing that there's no guarantee that they won't hurt us again? Where do we get the power and the mercy to forgive people that may not even think that they did anything wrong in the first place and they refuse to repent, they refuse to own it? Where do we get that sort of power? Well, last thing I want to look at tonight, if, if you look at how the story ends, you kind of discover what Jesus is up to. Because you find out he's not telling like this made-up story about just the principles of forgiveness. He's actually telling a story about you. He's telling a story about us. Because the story that he lays out is primarily the way that God forgives us in Jesus. And how then we become the people who can have the power to forgive other people. Okay, so how how does that happen? Well, he lays out kind of two steps, I think, uh, from the story. And then we'll be done after we look at these two steps. The first step is this. If if you want to become someone who can forgive, the first thing that you have to do is that you have to realize your debt. You have to realize your debt. I mean, Jesus is writing you and me into the story as that first servant, that one that had racked up that like multi-billion dollar debt to the king who is God. So we have to put ourselves in the story of, of we are the person who has so sinned against God that it is incalculably enormous. It is unfathomable how big our sin is. But we don't, like to, we don't like to talk about that. This makes us very uncomfortable to talk about sin in, these types, in this type of language. It's just so much easier, more congenial to talk about sin in terms of mistakes or imperfections, just bad decisions that we've made. And as long as we continue to talk like that, we will never become people that know how to forgive each other. We have to put ourselves in the story and start using language of, my sin is enormous. My sin against God, I can't wrap my head around. It is, it, it's so big. Now, the, the size is so enormous that this, this leads us to really come to terms with the fact that there's no way that you can pay off the debt. Once you realize that my, the debt that I owe to God is in the billions, th- there's no way that I can pay it off. And this means that you have to say, okay, no amount of Bible study, praying, coming to RUF, 
being really nice, giving away my money, going to mission trips. There's no amount of that that can pay off the debt. It's too big. It's too big. But I want you to see every other, every other religion basically gets packaged in terms of the guy's request of just give me more time and I'll pay it off. And it's this idea that if I just live a good life and I do enough good stuff, I'll, I will accumulate basically this credit of good stuff that when I die, the credit will outweigh the, the, the debit and I'll be in the positive. In other words, the good will outweigh the bad and I'll get in. And, the, and Christianity is the only religion that looks at that and says, that is hopeless. And that is hopelessly naive to think that you can do enough to pay off a multi-billion dollar debt to God. What this should do is that this should leave us, leave us in the position of being absolutely crushed. Of, of coming to the point of saying, I, I give up. There, there is nothing I can do to pay this thing off. I, I can't be good enough for this. And when you get brought to that position of, of saying, I am in desperate need and my only hope is to rely on the mercy of someone else to pay it for me. That's the sweet spot. That's actually where the Bible wants you to be. Crushed underneath the weight of, I can't pay this off. Because the good news of the gospel is the second step. is not just to uh, realize your debt, but it's to remember his payment. It's to remember his payment. Because remember we said that um, when the king forgives the servant, the king takes this multi-billion dollar hit, right? He absorbs the blow. And so if if we translate that into our real relationship with God, where does God absorb the multi-billion dollar debt for us? It's at the cross, right? I mean, the Bible claims that Jesus hanging on the cross, is bearing the torture and the punishment that our debts deserved. And so when you look at him bleeding and pierced and suffocating and hanging there on a cross, you are looking at God saying, I am paying the debt for you right now in this moment. And because Jesus has paid it, that gives God the ability to look at you and say, I forgive you for everything And I will not make you pay for one cent of it. Because Jesus has paid it all. He's paid for all of it in your place. Imagine this. Imagine that you have an enormous amount of school loans to ASU. Some of you are like, don't really have to imagine that. That's a reality. But let's just say for the sake of this illustration that you owe ASU thousands of dollars. And you owe the government millions of dollars in back taxes. And uh, you owe thousands of dollars of credit card debt. And you're flat broke. Now let's say all three of those institutions, ASU, the federal government, and the credit card company, all came at you at once and said, okay, we're, we're here to collect. It's time to pay up. And because you're broke, you're looking at, you're looking at prison. You're looking at a serious prison sentence. But let's say that, that, that somebody steps into this picture and pays off all of those debts for you. But not, but not only that, deposits $10 billion into your bank account so that you can live like a billionaire the rest of your life. I mean, one second, you are about to go to prison for the rest of your life, and the next second, you're thinking about going to Costa Rica and lounging on the beach, drinking pina coladas the rest of your life. I mean, how would you feel? How would you feel in that moment? 
I mean, my guess is that uh, whoever did that would would constantly be on your mind. I mean, you'd probably be telling and retelling the story to like everybody know, all all of your friends, people that you're meeting, like, you've got to hear what just happened to me. You've got to hear what happened to me. And my guess is you'd also probably be pretty generous. If you hear about people in financial trouble, you'd probably be generous to help them out. But look, that's the point of the story. That's the point of this passage is that when you see the size of your debt coupled with the size of his grace and of his mercy, when those two things kind of lock in your heart, that is what transforms you. That is what melts you. When you see his grace extended to you, I mean, doesn't that make you not want to rip apart people that hurt you anymore? Doesn't that make you a little bit more charitable, a little quicker to forgive, a little bit more willing to give grace? I mean, once you have tasted his grace, doesn't that make you just want to give it away to other people? I mean, you can't experience his grace. And at the same time, when people hurt you, be vindictive and angry and, and, and out for vengeance. It's like those, th- those two things don't make sense. And so the question that I really want to leave you with tonight is this, is do you keep score? Do you keep score with people? Do you have a scorecard of your roommate's offenses that you've bottled up into your head? Do you have a running tally of your boyfriend or your girlfriend's offenses that you can quickly pull out whenever you want? Do you know something about your, your, your friend or your roommate that you, you can pull out whenever you want and hang over their head in order for, them, for you to control them? Look, if that is you, this passage really does serve as a warning to you to say that the reason that you're not quick to forgive other people is that maybe yourself, you haven't experienced God's grace to begin with. And so really, it does not matter where you find yourself spiritually tonight. The invitation of this passage, and Jesus is calling everybody to realize the size of our debt and, to the, and then to remember the size of his payment. And that doesn't matter if you do that for the first time or the 500th time. The call is the same, to experience his mercy and then to extend his mercy. And that really is the invitation. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would um, be gracious enough to allow us to be the recipients of your mercy by faith. Father, I know that um, some of us think about the idea of forgiveness and think about there is no way with what I've done. My sin is too big. I'm too messed up. I'm too broken. I I can't forgive myself. How can God forgive me? Oh, Father, would would you melt away those sorts of prideful uh, obstacles in our hearts? And and crush us under the weight of our own sin. Bring us to the point of, of despair within ourselves that we would have no other place to turn but to the mercy and to the free forgiveness of your Son. I pray, Father, that uh, the Lord Jesus would become beautiful and believable tonight as a result of this passage. Would you do that in my heart and the hearts of these folks here? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.